Our scripture reading this morning is from 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning with verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially of those who believe. Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself in the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Please be seated. Father, would you now meet us here as we have gathered in your presence with your people and before your word, would you teach us now, would you make pliable our hearts, soften them with the gospel, that we would hear your voice, that you would shape our ways as your people in this world. We pray in the name of Christ who gave himself for us. Amen. Amen. Um, <clears throat> if you hadn't noticed, the, uh, the traffic is not what it used to be around here. Um, I've learned with the driving that I do and the sort of driving that you do that um, there's a lot of different things that I can occupy myself with or distract myself with driving around on these uh, interstates and back roads trying to avoid interstates and and others. And one of the things I've learned is I've found myself often listening to a podcast. And there's different kinds. And I've landed more than once on uh, the podcast from Desiring God Ministries. I've actually mentioned that before. Commend it to you along the way. Uh, the host of that um, <clears throat> broadcast, podcast, is, uh, is a man named Tony Ranke. And here's what I heard yesterday. We live in in the age of life hacking. That's the art of accumulating tricks and skills that increase our personal productivity. It's, it's the, goal, the goal of life hacking is productivity. We mark off areas of our lives and reduce them to small behaviors that we can speed up or improve so that we can be more productive or live well as a result. Um, 
There's an industry, he mentions, that has grown up around this. Books, blogs, and have you been to the app store lately? Uh, things that are, <clears throat> that are right before us that are meant to make our life better. But there's a problem, or there can be. We can be uh, more productive and more proficient and, and more efficient and still miss out on something big. In fact, he says rightly, I think, this, that intentionally or not, most of the attempts in this culture that we step into from time to time to improve our lives in some small way, either intentionally or unintentionally, leave God out of that picture, out of that remedy, out of that new habit or that new practice. He calls it the toxic flaw of life hacking. Because we can be more productive and at the same time lose our way along the way of life. It's what uh, one author said, um, we can make all A's and still flunk life. He says it this way, we can become more and more proficient with daily routines and less and less clear of the ultimate purpose and end of life inside God's creation. That's when life hacking goes wrong. It's a little bit like <clears throat> the, uh, the, par the new parent who says, well, now that we have children, we need a moral foundation for our life together as a family, so we're going to try church again. That parent may be guilty of life hacking, <laughs> of, of borrowing something to make life a little better than it was without God. And there's where it goes wrong. And we have story after story, don't we? Maybe our own story of, of making life work apart from God or attempting and finding out that we stumble our way and fall in the process. When we come to a passage like this one today, and frankly, this would be true of a number of passages in Paul's letters, because Paul, you see, is an apostle. He's, he has been a torchbearer of the gospel. He, he was one who had no room for God in his life, as busy as he was religiously. Nobody was busier and more productive than Saul before he became Paul. Read that story later in Acts. But as Paul's life was made new, he, like David, could then say, I have set God before me. And once God is before me, once God is in the right place in my life, things fall together in ways that I've been trying to make work together and have been unable. So Paul's writing letters left and right, and we have several. He's not the only writer of letters in the New Testament, but we have more from Paul than anyone, and we see Paul as the apostle passing the baton to young Timothy a pastor who has charge of a congregation and a body of believers. And what we see as we step into this, these few verses from the Apostle Paul, a letter, a personal letter between one person and another with instructions about what life is like, it's like we've come to a greenhouse. You know the greenhouse? 
The greenhouse where plants are placed in the right soil at the right temperature, in the right environment, in the right moisture <clears throat> for a period of time where plants grow and they bear fruit or flower and take root and flourish. We come to 1 Timothy 4 and we press our nose up against the glass of the glass house. And what we see inside the glass house is a snapshot and a picture of the environment, the nutrients, the climate that God intends would be true for us as we live lives that bear fruit and flourish in this world. That's what we see. And we're listening to the, the particular instructions that a pastor gets about preaching. And that's not just for me today or Nate on most Sundays. We get a glimmer into what God intends for his people. Uh, it's the greenhouse. And, and what we see when we look in there, we see the practices that God intends would be true for my life and yours as we reorder the loves in our life around those loves, those things that are most true, most lovely, and most beautiful. The context is there's some false teaching. <clears throat> and so, no surprise, Paul addresses that head on and says the false teaching that is occurring, the shallow teaching, what we might call the spiritual junk food that is being offered to you needs to be recognized for what it is. And as you step together, as you come together, it should be around something central and true and lovely and beautiful. And what he wants us to get is he wants us to get this gospel story. He wants to get the story straight. He wants us to get it right and to get it deeper and to understand more of it. That's the invitation <clears throat> that we find when we look at a passage like this. It's not life hacking. It's not adding a religious component to your life. It's stepping into the story of all stories. That's what Paul writes about in fuller language other places. But we have a window into one episode here that is instructive to us <clears throat> where we learn what, how God intends for us to be what Francis Schaeffer called the new humanity. We're called out from humanity to be made into a new humanity before a lost humanity. That's the church. That's us gathered in his name. <clears throat> if you're a Christian, <clears throat> something supernatural has happened to you. The Lord has planted his own life in you, has made you part of his orchard or vineyard or greenhouse. He's, he's planted you there. And it means that you can expect to grow spiritually, to see change where change has been hard. You can expect to grow. You can expect to bear fruit that will benefit others. And what's striking about this passage and others that Paul writes is that you are to plan to grow in the context of God's community. That's where it occurs. It's why the local church is as central as it is to God's purposes in the world. It's where we come. It's who we are. It's where we come with expectations and we come with questions and we come with hope. 
What we find when we look through the window of this greenhouse, <clears throat> we see the priority of practice. We see the value of practice and we see the goal. And that's what we're going to do with the time that we have. The priority of practice. Basically, <clears throat> when, when Paul writes to Timothy, he's, one of his instructions there right out of the gate is, train yourself, Timothy. Train yourself for godliness. Now that's a word that um, Paul uses when he gets serious about being practical about the Christian faith. In fact, some of you are hoping that this sermon will be very practical and not just esoteric. When, when Paul <clears throat> attempts to do that, he zeroes in on godliness and he says godliness is practical. It's practical for living in this world. And here's why he says that. He says it because the word used outside the Bible refers to respect or reverence. And it's used of rulers and magistrates and parents even. When Paul uses the word, he means something similar but bigger. And the bigger part is this. What Paul means by godliness is the obedience that springs from a reverent awe of God. If you think about that, if that's the case, if godliness is an obedience that springs from a reverent awe of God, you could say that godliness is a response. That's what it is. It's a response to something. It's a response, Paul says, to the, <clears throat> to the picture that forms in front of us when we see God most clearly when we see that He is a Father who loves us, who comes to us, when, we, when that begins to take shape, there's a response that it elicits. And that's what he's talking about. He says, train yourself. And when he says, train yourself, he's basically saying to Timothy and to us, get in the gym. That's what he's saying, get in the gym. In fact, that's the language that he uses. Train yourself is the word that we translate gymnasium or gymnastics. It's get in the gym and do some things in that gym that will be beneficial to you. You may, you may need to pick up some things that are heavy or you may, you may need to bend in directions you don't normally bend or you may need to stretch some things and you may feel it the next morning. But when he says get in the gym and exercise and train yourself for godliness, he's saying not only get in the gym, but I will go with you. I will be in there with you. I will spot you. I'll be the one to make sure that the weight that you're lifting doesn't crush you under its weight. I'll be the one to walk beside you and coach you along the way. Train yourself for godliness. And the reason Paul could say that is that he himself was trained and he knew this firsthand. And it wasn't his religious <clears throat> zeal. He talks about how empty that was. But he says, what has happened to me is I've been schooled in the school of grace. And I'm a different person because of it. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I worked harder than any of them, Paul says. 
And it was not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Grace trained me. When he writes to Titus, he says, grace has appeared, bringing salvation and training us to say no to ungodliness and yes to the righteousness. He says, I've been schooled by grace. And that's the gym that I want to walk you into, God says, the school of grace. And Paul says in Philippians 3, I press on because I've met Christ. You see, it's a response. It's always a response. When you begin, if you're trying to try to press on, to exercise these things into your life, my hunch is it doesn't take long before that becomes a tedious, failing drudgery. You know that one? Been there? Done that? But it's a different picture when we enter the gym with Christ at our side or with God before us. When we set God before us, when we reach for the weights, when we stretch and bend and, and move in new ways, there's something not only beneficial to us, but causes us to flourish because we're not in it alone, that he is with us, that he is the one at work. You know, there's this great mystery, isn't there, between God's sovereignty and his role in our spiritual growth and ours. It's a mystery that has created book after book after book. That's actually a subtitle of one of my favorite books, The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges. God's role and our role in the pursuit of holiness. They belong together. They go hand in hand. And we have a difficulty sometimes connecting those two. But that's what comes out of the gospel. It's because godliness is a response. It's a response to the love of the Father for you. And when that becomes clear, do you know what happens? Do you, what happens when somebody really, 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 really loves you well? You want to want to please him or her. We don't do it very consistently or, or, or regularly or very well at times, but isn't that the case? You want to want when that's the case? That's what Paul is saying here. Train yourself, Timothy, for godliness. Step into the gym because I am with you. That's the priority. It's a priority is what Paul is saying. Timothy, take this seriously, and your church should as well. Get in the gym, train yourself for godliness, and here's why. And there's where he moves to the value. He doesn't leave us dangling. He connects that exhortation to the logic. He says, here's why. Because the training that you do in the gym with me for, for your good and my glory has a benefit not only in the present life, your life here will flourish in ways that you wish it would. <laughs> that life that you've been searching for, here it is. I will take you there. Your life in this present world will benefit you. It's what you're after. It's what gives poise to your life right now when, when life crumbles apart from me. It's where your life is on track, where your relationships improve, where where things are ordered 
to use Augustine's word again, those disordered loves are reordered and realigned with what's true and right and lovely and good and lasting and beautiful that we long for. But it's not only this present life. It's the one to come. Do you remember when you learned to drive? Some of you are ready to learn to drive. What I remember maybe most clearly was with hands squeezing the steering wheel, uh, peering over the front of the hood to see the road in front of me, but unable to see the bend in the road 50 yards away. Now that created a problem once or twice. <laughs> Looking right in front and not missing, uh, missing completely the bend in the road or maybe the car that had stopped. There's a risk, you see, when, when, our, when our sight is that short. And what God is calling us to do in this passage is to recognize that this godliness that we are training into, training ourselves into, is not only beneficial in the short run, but in the life to come, in the world to come. We're putting on the clothes when we go in the gym, the spiritual gym. We're putting on the clothes that we will wear. We're wearing the righteous robes of Christ by faith. That's a gift. But we are being shaped into the image of Christ. And that is where you're headed. The person sitting next to you and behind you in front of you, by faith, belonging to Christ, are being transformed from one degree of glory to another as something happens. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3, it's when, it's when they behold the beauty of Christ. That's the change that God is working in you. That's the value of doing these things now. <clears throat> There's a value that is worth the stretch and worth the ambition, as Paul calls it, worth the pursuit, worth the pressing on. It's growing into the fullness of who you are. Nate said this last week. We, what we're doing is we're growing into the character that we are, into the position that we have, into, the, in, into this life, of, this union with Christ and this vital life-giving gospel shaping us and forming us into an image that looks like Christ. That's the priority and the value. And here's the goal. It's by practicing these practices that we find something or maybe better someone. We do this when we step into the gym, we find rivers of grace. We find a fresh tasting a new reservoir of life-giving water that nourishes us, that feeds us, that forms us, and leads us into places of flourishing. What Paul is after, I mentioned the false teaching that was going on. Paul says, we need to, Timothy, you need to put these things in front of the people. And what does he mean? He's referring to these gospel truths that he's been talking about and writing about. These things ultimately are the, the story of God. 
He contrasts it with the godless myths or the spiritual junk food that's floating around. And he says the goal is to get the story straight, to get it in front and to talk it through and to think it through and to live it out. He doesn't go into a lot of detail. He doesn't say how this works. But he does say preach these things, teach these things, exhort in this direction. And the direction is the gospel. It's to get this right. It'd be right to say that disciplined meditation in the story of the gospel is indispensable to Christian health and growth and holiness. Indispensable. It doesn't happen any other way. I want to take a moment here and try to tease that out a little bit and just say what that looks like and how it works in practice, the things. This is when it happens and what it looks like when it does. It happens through the sustained effort anchored in the grace of God. I said a moment ago, those two things that we, we have such a difficult time connecting, God does repeatedly. It's a sustained effort in the, anchored in the grace of God. The writer of Hebrews says, make every effort to be holy in chapter 12, but that's after 11 chapters of explaining the finished work of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the fullness of his final sacrifice, and you're made perfect by the one who has made you perfect, clothed in his righteousness. Then he says, make every effort. They, they, they go hand in hand. They, they, they're, they're a piece together. And while we have a hard time sometimes connecting because it feels like legalism or moralism or self-righteousness, it's simply, if you think back a moment ago, it's the response. It's the, it's the heart's response to the lavish love of God for you in Christ. The goal, you see, <clears throat> is getting the story straight and through sustained effort anchored in grace, recognizing the fact that we always need the gospel. Jerry Bridges, in that book I mentioned, says this, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And that is good news. Your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. But here's what we need to hear, most of us. Your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. Both of those are true, right? And that's the gospel that we celebrate, that, God, that, that Paul is laying in front of Timothy to lay in front of others, including us today. That there's a gospel that is true, and, and it's only the joy of hearing the gospel and being reminded that our sins are forgiven in Christ that will keep the demands of discipleship from becoming drudgery. Drudgery, that can happen. That can happen to any of us <clears throat> the moment we lose sight of Christ. The moment that we lose sight of the one who, as Paul said, gave himself for me because he loved me. When we lose sight of that, Drudgery follows. It's only gratitude and love to God that comes from knowing that he no longer counts our sins against us that provides any proper motive for responding to the claims of discipleship. It's through the sustained effort anchored in the grace of God. It's through countless choices made one at a time. That's the second facet of this. 
Countless choices made one at a time. We're constantly choosing. We're choosing what we believe and what's important. And what, what we're seeing here is that God calls us to recognize how many choices we are making all day long. We're making choices. You're making a choice right now. I'm making a choice. We're making choices constantly. And the choices that, that, that Paul is, the story pulls us into is to, is to realign those choices throughout the day in light of the gospel. We don't make choices in a vacuum. I mean, as much as sometimes it feels like we do, when we're making a choice, we're bringing something to the table. It's commitments and priorities and values. And we choose what makes the most sense at this moment with what's in front of us. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, to us, step back for a minute and let's think about the commitments and the values that now shape and inform these routine choices that we're making. Like, what will I do this afternoon? Or what time will I get out of bed in the morning? Or go to bed tonight? Is there, is there an expectation that, that God would be present in those kinds of decisions? Absolutely. I remember somebody saying to me once, I was in college, so that will explain my response. I uh, said, Tony, if you're going to take this worship of God seriously, if you're going to gather for worship and, and with the expectation that God would meet you and, uh, on a Sunday morning, you're going to have to go to bed early on Saturday night. And I remember thinking, <laughs> who's he talking to? <clears throat> you know, but <clears throat> I've learned how important that is, actually. And it didn't take this long to figure that out. Thankfully, I, I, that one dawned on me a little earlier. Choices that we're making constantly, it, as God shapes our choices by the values and convictions that we have, the things that matter to us, that will determine <clears throat> what I'm doing tomorrow morning when the, when the alarm goes off that I've set purposefully in order to allow time to spend time unhurried in God's presence before anything else, except coffee. <laughs> it's through sustained effort anchored in the grace of God. It's through countless choices made one at a time. It's through the practice of beholding the beauty of Jesus Christ. What do I mean by that? Earlier in chapter 3, Paul says, he talks about the mystery of Christ. And he says, this godliness that we're talking about, that I'm about to talk about, is rooted in the mystery of Christ. This mystery of God-man. This mystery of redemption. This mystery of hope in a broken world that comes in the person of Jesus who comes into this world and says, look at me and listen to me. That's a mystery. It's a mystery to a world that is scratching its head over the fact that we are gathered in this room on a Sunday morning when we could be somewhere else. There's a mystery to us, though. We can't fully wrap our minds around this, but it's the mystery, to borrow words from Michael Card, we bow our knees before. We bow our knees before the mystery, adoring the one who adores us. Jesus is the essence and wellspring of godliness. 
He lived in godliness and now as the ascended Lord gives us his godliness. It's not external, but it's the inner power to live a godly life that, that God not only invites you into, he calls you into it and says, come with me into the gym. Take up, read, pray, serve, worship. Extend your life in the ways that your life was designed to extend because I am with you. Have you seen? Have you seen a glimmer of his beauty? Some of you have and remember a time in your life where the gospel came, came forth in multicolors. This story that you've heard maybe for years finally took on, it was black and white and now it's in technicolor. God breaks into lives like yours and does that very thing. And you begin to see the beauty of Christ. Have you been struck by his word? Augustine said, Thou, O Lord, didst strike my heart with thy word, and I loved thee. What a great picture. What a great picture of what God does to us as we take up these practices, as we take up these things that, that God has laid in front of us. Lord, would you strike our hearts with your word and create in us a love for you that we cannot manufacture. You know how they shape steel? They expose it to white hot intense heat. And when steel that is hard and, and cold and, and brittle is exposed to white hot temperatures, it is softened. It becomes bendable. Whereas the same pressure without it being heated would snap it in two when it's heated is shaped in a design by the designer. In the same way that when your heart and mine are exposed to the white hot heat of the gospel, of the love of God in Christ for you, your will, your practices, your habits become bendable and moldable. And the great irony is it's in those practices where that occurs. It's when we spend our time right here or in other ways that God has designed that, that our lives would be shaped. Corporate worship, private readings, individual reading and prayer. There are eight of those practices that we're talking about around here these days. If, uh, if you were here this last hour, you heard a little bit, and we invite you back next week to hear more about eight practices that we believe are foundational for shaping our lives in a Godward direction, where we come face to face with the beauty of Christ and our lives become malleable and pliable and formed and transformed into the image of Christ.
John Owen, in conclusion, Puritan said this, you know, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. There's a lot of ways he might have finished that sentence. Or we might have expected him to, but he finished that sentence that way because he had been formed and shaped in the white-hot love of Christ. The greatest sorrow and burden you and I can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness that we can do to him is not to believe that he loves us. Peter called him the God of all grace. The Apostle John said, Behold what kind of love the Father has given that we should be called children of God, and so we are. And it was Paul who said, The one who loved me and gave himself for me. And there's no clearer place than we see that love for us in Christ. The practice, so to speak, of the Lord's Supper. We're about to go there. And when we do, I would invite you to recognize that we, as we've said in this series repeatedly now, we, were, we are lovers made to love and be loved. But we are lovers who have loved the wrong things. Not only once upon a time, but even right now. God, would you as we hold these elements in our hands, would you shape us in godly ways to be able to love the right things because we love you first, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. That's one of, one of the ways, one of the things that we see when we peer through the glass of the greenhouse. That's why Jesus said, do this often. Because it's the... It's the environment. It's, the, it's where the culture is shaped. It's where the church is formed. It's where your life is transformed, not only at this table, but in his word, in gathered, gathered, gathered settings as, you, as we collectively tell this story to one another <clears throat> so that we would be, in those words of Schaefer, a new humanity called out from humanity to live out that before a lost humanity. Let's pray to that end. Father, would you meet us? Would you shape us? Would you grant us a clearer glimpse of Jesus and his love for us than we've had? That we know more of you, the one who is righteous and good and lovely and beautiful, the one who has called us to himself, who lived the life that we could not live, and in his death and resurrection and ascension, now grants that life to us, taking up <clears throat> our hope in him, we come to you. Through Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen. I want to invite you now, if you would, to join me in these prayers of thanksgiving and pardon as God's people gathered together. Father God, we know that this is love, that we walk according to your commandments, Cause us to be steadfast under trial that we may receive the crown of life that you have promised for those who love you. Father God, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Lord Jesus, we pray that the love of you would control us, 
that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for you who died and was raised for our sake. May we have encouragement in you, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, and may we be of the same mind, having the same love. Lord Jesus, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Holy Spirit, help us to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, to meet together and encourage one another. Let all that we do be done in love. Holy Spirit, listen to the prayers of your people. Lord, hear our prayer. Till Christ is formed in us, that's our aim. That's our hope. Let's stand and sing.